I want to thank the choir for singing that challenging hymn tune and text, uh, but it really fits with our scripture lesson that was read just prior to it. Um, I had the pleasure of being in a music workshop with the composer of that piece, Thomas Traeger, a number of years ago, and uh, it's never left me that haunting sound uh, for people who deal with different challenges of the spirit and the mind and mental illness and those kinds of things. Um, and the unknown mysteries of life. And I also want to thank Becky, wherever she is, Becky Ogle, uh, our substitute but no stranger organist to us. Um, Becky, who was for many years, over 40 years, our organist here at the church. Um, Becky, welcome back to the bench this morning while she was away. So wonderful to have you. And I didn't have a chance to welcome our online worshipers, and I want to do that as well. So all that aside, let's uh, begin this morning's sermon. Because the neighborhood church has always been and always had a rich history in religious freedom. Religious freedom. And with that comes a respect and openness to inquiry. We are a church which affirms the questions as much as the answers. We are all questioners. The essence of the human is to pose questions concerning the journey we find ourselves on with its origins, its nature, and its destinations. We are the only creatures in all organic life who pose questions. But there can be fear in questions, especially when your questions have to do with basic structures of belief. If you ask too many questions about your faith, your faith runs the risk of vanishing. And so there is a deep inner drive in us to get things nailed down in the area of basic beliefs. And at this Lenten season, it is the drive to get nailed things down, which brought Jesus to a cross. For when we nail things down and then we fence the territory off, it remains for us seemingly safe, and understood. There are some Christians who believe that, that a person of true faith is one who ceases to ask questions. And I believe nothing could be further from the truth. Blaise Pascal once said that it is a glorious thing to be a ship when we know for sure that it will reach the harbor. We do know it will, or don't we? Why then shouldn't we let the wind whistle about our ears? I love that. To be a person of faith is not to run from faith with appropriate piety and certainty, but to learn to ask the right questions and let the wind whistle about you, knowing that the ship of Christian belief is sound and with all its starts and stops and bumps, is headed toward a promised harbor. Our, old nest, our, our New Testament lesson for today from Mark's Gospel, it's, it's bustling with questions. Four times, the Greek word, eparato, is used, which means to pose an urgent question. In the passage preceding our text, when it says that they were coming down from the mountain that Mickey read for us, Peter, James, and John 
had been on a mountaintop with Jesus when they saw him bathed in a strange light with Moses and Elijah. We call that the transfiguration. And we sense it as a visionary experience where for a few brief moments a special insight is gained. But life cannot be lived and sustained on the mountaintop. And Jesus tells them that when they want to set up tents and booths and stay there, that no, they must return. And so the inevitable downhill journey takes place from that mountaintop. And while the disciples and Jesus are are negotiating the rocks and the crevices, the disciples pose a question about the messianic age. It's a theological question because it's a question about their life in relation to God and God's purposes. Jesus, they ask, why must Elijah come first? Jesus answers that Elijah has already come and both Elijah and the Son of Man must suffer. An impossible idea for the disciples to comprehend. The disciples had a strange experience on that mountaintop, and to ask the theological question is is an attempt to make sense out of that experience. That's the first question in this sequence of questions. And when we have strong religious experiences, and many of us have, and then come back to normal life, we too have theological questions. The key to all theological questioning is not to take ourselves too seriously. Christer Stendhal, who was for many years the dean of Harvard Divinity School, was once speaking to students and he told them that to do theology is to try to see things as God sees them. That is why we can only do it playfully as children. That task is so obviously arrogant and oversized to see things the way God does. So we need children to remind us that we look at things playfully and yet seriously so that we can learn in the process. To that end, we do theology. The longer I live, he concluded, the longer I live, the more tired I am of myself and the more excited I am about God. The longer I live, the more tired I am of myself and the more excited I am about God. We are those who inevitably ask theological questions. But all such asking is tentative, playful, and hopefully open to growth. Theological questioning is to be less hooked on yourself and your problems and to become more hooked on God and God's reality in your life. But this theological questioning in the sequence is interrupted by life at the base of the mountain when they come down. The disciples and Jesus confront a noisy crowd in the heat of frantic debate, and Jesus sees some of his disciples in that group, and he also notices some of the prominent scribes. And so the second question in this text is posed by Jesus. 
It's not a theological question. It's a situational question. A situational question. What's going on here? What are you arguing about? One of the crowd pipes up. Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Now the text is transparent. For Jesus has received the sense that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He's now coming off that mountain down to the reality again. And here he's confronted with some of his disciples who haven't caught on. And Jesus says, How much longer must I be with you? And put up with unbelief. Bring the boy to me. And the writhing, convulsing body is brought before Jesus. You see, all situational questions attempt to establish where you are, where you are. The issue is location. Jesus had been a part of that high spiritual moment up on the mountaintop. But theological questions aside, the downhill realities now rise up to confront him in the tumult of the crowd and the overwhelming need of this one who is suffering. All situational questions posit a temporary stopping place in the downhill journey before we move toward new action. In the world of nursery rhymes, Christopher Robin sings a situational song from our childhood. It's called Halfway Down. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. It's not at the bottom. It's not at the top, so this is the stair where I always stop. Halfway up the stairs isn't up, and it isn't down. It isn't in the nursery, and it isn't in town. And all sorts of funny thoughts run round my head. It isn't really anywhere. It's somewhere else instead. The situational questions come to us in the in-between moments of life. Those moments between the mountaintop vision and the valleys of human encounter. And so Jesus poses the third question in this sequence. It's not a theological question and it's not a situational question. It's a personal question directed toward the distraught father. How long have you struggled with this? And how long has this been happening to him? Oh, he says, since childhood. The fit comes upon him and he is in danger of hurting himself and others in his thrashing. But if you are able to help, have pity on us. And again, irritation is in the text. If I am able, all things are possible to those who have faith. That, you see, moves us from the unfathomable depths where a cry is heard, this cry of the Father, but a cry of, of many. It's more than his cry. It's really a cry that each of us makes 
when we recognize that we are struggling for a vital faith this morning. I have faith. I have faith. Help me when my faith is weak. Who has not cried that at some time in your life? You are here this morning because of that inner cry. It's, it's so personal. It's, it's soul-filled that it can barely even be articulated or whispered. For you are a person of faith, and I submit you are also a person of unfaith. You are a person of faith this morning and a person of unfaith. You are both of these persons wrapped up in the mystery of your personal identity. And God is present to your need even here in the midst of contradiction and inner division. That's the balance. We are a people of faith and we are at times a people of unfaith. This man without a name, struggling in the terrain of everyone who lives in the tension of faith and doubt, that inner balance we are always struggling with, dares to cry out from the the level of his deepest need, I believe, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And Jesus, seeing his need, rebukes the unclean spirit and with a second cry, this time from the boy himself, the spirit comes out and the boy is comatose. Comatose. The sequence here is crucial. Mark tells us that Jesus took him by the hand, raises him up, and the boy stood on his own feet. As if to say, God touches us in the weary moments and places of our struggles. And God lifts us up. But we have to stand on our own. God doesn't live our lives for us. We have to do that. That's the freedom I was talking about at the beginning. But God lifts us up so that we can stand on our own feet. That's the mystery and grace of freedom. The crowd melts away, and and going to a private place, the disciples and Jesus are together. Then the disciples pose our fourth question of this Gospel awakening. Why were we not able to cast it out? Why couldn't we cast it out? Well, that's not a theological question. And it's not a situational question, and it's not a personal question. It's a possibility question. It's a possibility question. Jesus' answer is simple and intimidating at the same time. No one can push beyond the possible except by prayer. No one can push beyond the possible except by prayer. Here we enter strange and dangerous territory, for we are surrounded by religious voices in our time which advocate prayer as magic. Some people think prayer is magic. To all those here this morning who insist that prayer is a flawless mechanism for fulfilling your desires, you need to journey this Lenten season all the way to Gethsemane 
and sense what Jesus prayed for and the outcome he was called to embrace. It wasn't the fulfilling of his own desires. Not at all. And so many people think that's what prayer is. Taking care of their own needs and making everything okay for them. That is not what prayer is. It certainly wasn't for Jesus. And that's the only reason he can save us. He went to Golgotha even though it was not his choice. There's no magic here. And yet, Jesus tells us that pushing past the possible can only unfold through prayer, where prayer is often acceptance. William Temple, the late Archbishop of Canterbury, put it in a marvelous way. He said, when you stop praying, coincidences stop. The fruit of all authentic prayer is to draw us closer to God so that His will is infused in us. Questions, questions, questions. We are all questioners as long as we live on this side of eternity. We ask theological questions. How does God's plan unfold in this world? We ask situational questions. What's going on here? We ask personal questions. Where are you and where am I hurting this day? And we ask possibility questions. How can God's power flow to and through my life. All these questions are present to this text as they are to our lives. For they are part of the quest for truth, which is everyone's personal agenda here this morning, acknowledged or suppressed. I believe. Help my unbelief. I have faith. Help me when my faith is weak. And Jesus took the boy by the hand and raised him up. And he stood on his own feet. He stood on his own faith and his own feet. Simone Veal, who was that wonderful and awesome Jewess of the last century, Judaism was her faith, and yet she was on a close journey with Christ. And she has this closing prompting for this morning for all who would dare to push beyond the possible. Here's what she said. For it seemed to me certain, and I still think so today, that no one can ever wrestle Enough with God. If one does does so out of pure regard for the truth, if you regard the truth, you will wrestle. You will wrestle with life and with God. And Christ likes us to prefer truth to Him because before being Christ, He is truth. If one turns aside from Him to go toward the truth... 
One will, no, one will not go far before falling, falling into his arms. Go toward truth, even if it seems you're going away from Christ, and you will fall into his arms. Wow. Wow. Praise be to God. For the arms which hold us steady in this free fall, which is our life. Amen.